0: This ADN Politics Podcast is brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible.
1: A note before we start. This week's ADN Politics deals with the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know are dealing with a mental health crisis or suicidal thoughts, you can call the 24-7 Alaska Care Line at 988 or 1-877-266-HELP at any time. For more information on the Alaska Suicide Prevention Council and Suicide in Alaska, visit health.alaska.gov slash suicide prevention. From the Anchorage Daily News, this is ADN Politics, a podcast navigating Alaska's changing political landscape. I'm your host, Elizabeth Harball. Last year, a record 18 people died while in custody of the Alaska Department of Corrections. Seven of those deaths were suicides. That's also a record. Daily News reporter Michelle terrio Boots co-wrote an investigation with reporter Tess Williams, and they looked into what's behind those alarming numbers. Michelle, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Michelle, I was wondering if you could start by telling us the story of James Ryder, a man who you focused on in your reporting. Who was he and what happened to him?
0: James Ryder grew up in the Matsu Valley out in Houston, spending a little time with his family in the Bristol Bay area. And as an adult, he, he worked in construction, he did a lot of odd jobs, and he fell into drug addiction. And for years, his family says he had been struggling to get out of that and while well, kind of racking up a criminal record with some kind of low-level property crimes. And then things seemed to be turning a corner last August, and he was, seems like, in earnest trying to get help for his addiction when he found himself back in jail for breaking some terms of his conditions, trespassing, and a couple other fairly low-level charges. And what happened next, according to his older brother, Mike Cox, was that James told correctional officials at the jail that he was feeling suicidal. And so he was put on suicide precautions, which he told his brother included, you know, being stripped naked and put in something he described as like a straight jacket and then placed into a padded room by himself for a period of days. And he hated that experience so much, he told his brother on the phone, I'm never going to say anything again about being suicidal to the guards here. And what happened after that, isn't really known by the family, but to their understanding, he was first moved to another cell with some cellmates and then inexplicably to his family moved to a cell alone. And within a day, he had hanged himself. He was discovered by guards and rushed to a hospital where he died several days later.
1: So Ryder was one of 7 people who died by suicide while in the custody of the Department of Corrections last year and there were 18 people total. Can you break down the data a little bit more? How did the number of people who died last year while in custody compare to previous years?
0: Yeah, well 18 deaths was a record and 7 suicides was also a record. And you know, we obtained data going back to the year 2000 and For many years, there were maybe one, two, or three suicides per year within the Department of Corrections, uh, pretty consistently, all the way up until 2020, when there were five. 2021, there were two. And then 2022, there were seven. So that was a significant
1: increase. How was the Corrections Department telling people about these deaths as they were happening?
0: Typically, when a person dies in Department of Corrections custody, it's first important to understand we have a unified system in Alaska, so our jails for unsentenced people and our prisons, typically for sentenced people, but also sometimes holding unsentenced people awaiting trials, are all run by the same entity, the Alaska Department of Corrections. So when somebody dies in any of those facilities, they send out a pretty brief press release kind of stating the very basic facts about what happened— You'll often see language like the person was found unresponsive in their cell. But they don't come out and say what the person died from. And for a long time, they've cited medical privacy laws as the reason for that. But in response to some pressure this fall, they did release a little bit more information, which was kind of a breakdown of how many people died by what they described as natural or medical causes and how many people died by
1: suicide. And they told us that seven people died by suicide. So does that mean the remaining 11 people died by natural causes?
0: I mean, not necessarily. They are classified, I think, as medical deaths. So there were no deaths that were ruled to be homicides. But of those remaining deaths, we know we've gotten details and reports on several of them. And, you know, there are things like expected terminal illness, a man with a seizure disorder who fell and hit his head while having a seizure. Um, And then there's several that I think have not yet, the files haven't been closed, and so we don't actually know the exact cause of death for those folks yet, but they're
1: all classified as medical natural causes deaths. So given how tight-lipped the correction department can be, can you tell us a little bit more about your reporting process to learn the circumstances behind these deaths?
0: Yeah, this has been a real source of frustration for many years. I mean, I think I started first reporting on deaths in custody in Alaska back in 2014. And back then, it was really families who were asking for details of what happened. And they struggled, oftentimes, to find out even, you know, basic narrative, because the Department of Corrections considers the circumstances around deaths to be medical privacy, barred from release by medical privacy laws. But... The Alaska Department of Public Safety, the Alaska State Troopers, anytime a person dies in custody, troopers are supposed to go out and investigate it. Now, they're not investigating to see if policy was broken, if something could have been done to prevent this through procedure. They're simply investigating to see if a crime was committed or not. So these are not necessarily very detailed investigations, but there is a paper trail there. And there are facts in those Reports. So we were able to, through a public records request to the Alaska Department of Public Safety, obtain reports for some but not all of the deaths last year. That kind of spelled out what happened and had time, which personnel arrived on the scene, where the person was, what had been happening in the hours leading up to the death, what video surveillance might have captured, which was new, which really we hadn't
1: seen before. Is there any kind of common thread with the people who died while in custody that you saw in those documents?
0: In our analysis, we didn't see a common thread through all of the suicides, but what we did see in several of them were people who had been identified to have serious acute mental illness and had been placed into housing units for people with serious mental illnesses with the idea that in those housing units you get higher level of monitoring you have access to more mental health clinicians yet people were still able to kill themselves while in those units we also saw in more than one case evidence that the irregular 15 minute checks that are the standard for correctional officers wellness checks were not done or were done late or did not fulfill their function in one case A young woman had died by suicide and was not discovered in her cell for more than three hours, though seven wellness checks were done on her cell in that time period.
1: So when you looked at some of these individual incidents, were there clear signs of neglect? Was the Department of Corrections not doing something that it should have been doing?
0: You know, I don't know if I can come to the conclusion that there was neglect involved, but what we definitely can say is that the facts show that in multiple cases, people who were on suicide watch were then put in cells alone, which the chief of mental health for the Department of Corrections said is not ideal, not the best practice. So we know that happened and probably shouldn't have happened. We know that there were not always 15-minute irregular checks done, or if there were, they were not effective in detecting what was happening in a cell. And we also know that people who were put for their own safety in higher-level mental health housing units were also able to kill themselves, though that being one of the main functions of those units, to keep people safe. Also, multiple people—in fact,
1: several people—died while in some kind of solitary confinement. What is the Correction Department's responsibility to inmates with mental health concerns?
0: The Department of Corrections has a custodial responsibility to provide for—constitutional responsibility—to provide for the physical and mental health of people in its care. And it says that it strives to do that in Always Possible. Um, correctional officials often mention that the DOC is the largest provider of mental health services in the state of Alaska by number of people served which is kind of says something, right? (laughs) And what they also say is that they have a very sick population, which is true. They are not in the position to turn anybody away at the door. They get who they get. People who are coming into jail and prison with a lot of very, very difficult physical and mental health issues that may have led them to jail. Yet the Department of Corrections does have a legal responsibility, a constitutional responsibility to provide for physical and mental health, to provide good health care.
1: with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss how Alaska fits into the national trend of deaths behind bars.
0: At Steam.Coffee, we're proud to support great journalism, and we're proud of our pursuit of great coffee. We search the world for the finest raw materials and then roast them to perfection at our Anchorage headquarters. All with one thing in mind, the finest coffee possible in your cup. Come visit us at either of our Anchorage cafes or online at SteamDot.com.
1: Welcome back to the ADN Politics Podcast. Michelle, something you noted in your reporting is that this isn't just a trend we're seeing in Alaska. Among incarcerated people, deaths by suicide have gone up nationwide. Do we know why? No. Both just suicide
0: Broadly, in society at large and suicide within correctional facilities have really markedly gone up over the last 20 or so years. And I think researchers are struggling to figure out why. I talked to an expert, a national expert on this topic, and what he said is people don't know exactly why, but there is some evidence that at least in correctional facilities that the coronavirus pandemic really changed daily life and what the experience of incarceration was like. Always bleak, probably, (laughs) but made it even more locked down and difficult, and that we're seeing the fallout of that. There's also an idea that just the labor shortages that have certainly reached the correctional workforce are affecting the ability of prisoners to die by suicide because there's just simply not the staff that might be there otherwise.
1: Yeah, you touched on this. The COVID-19 pandemic had a big impact on how prisons and jails were run. Did that come up as a factor in your reporting here in Alaska? Yes
0: and no. In 2020, certainly conditions inside correctional facilities were very very spartan and difficult. There was zero visiting. There were n- there was no programming, the things that people do to spend their time productively while they're incarcerated didn't exist. And that was among both sentence prisoners serving long sentences and people just awaiting trials. And the entire criminal, the kind of the cogs of the machinery slowed down so much so that people were spending a lot more time waiting for their charges to be resolved. And it would be speculating to connect that to what was then a an increase, but a more modest increase in suicides. But certainly, you know, I know of two cases that year of suicides that happened that were both people who had really just gotten to jail and were facing long, uncertain periods because of the slowdown and the confusion and the chaos of the criminal justice system at that time. Conditions, I think, have normalized somewhat, but you still have a overall reduction in the kind of positive programming that exists. The the things that inmates can do to better themselves, get a GED, get addiction counseling, things like that. So I don't know exactly what the connection is there, but it does seem that there is
1: some connection. And how about the role of drugs and addiction in some of these in-custody deaths as well?
0: Well, one thing we do know is that 65% of all people incarcerated in Alaska have a diagnosable mental illness. I don't know exactly about the number that have a active addiction, but we know that that's a common experience for people. And there's been a lot of focus on the physical impact of addiction to someone, you know, being booked into jail, they're addicted to heroin, say, and what the withdrawal does to them. There was a very high-profile death related to that several years back. But what we know less about is how addiction affects someone's mental and emotional state in jail and whether that might lead to some of these suicide deaths. And that's certainly something I think we want to know more about. You know, I don't know about James Ryder, but I do know that addiction was an issue he struggled with, and it would make sense that those issues would translate into jail
1: settings. This isn't the first time that Alaska's Department of Corrections has been under scrutiny for a string of deaths in prisons in recent years. Can you walk us through some of that recent history and what the response was like then?
0: Yeah, the highest profile example is probably Israel Keyes. Israel Keys was a suspected serial killer who in 2012 was charged with the death of a Anchorage teenager named Samantha Koenig as well as suspecting the deaths of a Vermont couple. The FBI thought he had killed maybe six to eight more people. They were across the country over a period of many years, and they were in the process of months of interrogations of him. So he was a very high-value, high-profile detainee at the Anchorage jail, and he was able to kill himself there in December 2012, basically leaving a lot of things unsolved And that was a huge embarrassment for the department. (laughs) And there was the fallout for that lasted for years. Then in 2014, there were a series of very egregious deaths, including a mentally ill man from California who died of completely preventable stomach ulcer related causes after just suffering in his cell for weeks, and it was all documented. It was all in video, and it was really horrifying. And so some of these deaths came to the public's attention. And there was a legislative investigation. there were hearings. There was eventually a um, the governor at the time asked for a review, kind of a system-wide review. And a man named Dean Williams did that, and then he became the Department of Corrections leader in the Walker administration, the administration of former Governor Walker. And he instituted some reforms based on these deaths, uh, one of which was to start an independent internal affairs investigative unit. Because one of the criticisms has always been that when these deaths happen, the DOC says, well, we investigate ourselves, Of course we do, but it's secret. And they also say, well, the troopers investigate us. But that investigation, is really limited in its scope. It's really just looking at was a crime committed or not. So the idea of this investigative unit was that it would be a rigorous yet independent investigation of each death beyond just was a crime committed. But looking more at like, is there a policy here that needs to be changed? Does someone need to lose their job? Does someone need to be reassigned? What were the core causes of this? And so that existed for several years. But as soon as the Dunleavy administration came in in 20, late 2018, early 2019, Commissioner Nancy Dahlstrom, the newly appointed commissioner, was one of the first things she kept citing
1: efficiencies and cost savings. Nancy Dahlstrom, of course, now our lieutenant governor. Given that there were a record number of deaths last year under the Dunleavy administration, have officials with the state corrections department said they're going to do anything differently now?
0: The current commissioner, Jen Winkleman, did say to a legislative committee that 18 deaths are too many. Those were her exact words, too many. And the department is, it sounds like they are looking to... Well, they aren't, but the Alaska State Troopers are looking to add a position that would be an investigator of deaths within correctional facilities. So that would be a positive development, though that does not satisfy what some advocates and activists would like to see, which is that independent, non-law enforcement investigative unit within the Department
1: of Corrections. Some of the families of people who've died by suicide in the prison system have taken legal action against the state what do those cases tell us?
0: There are two cases in particular that are pretty interesting and recent. Both are from 2020. Both are young women. One was a woman who was apparently suffering from some addiction and mental health issues booked into Highland Correctional and within a day had died by suicide. The lawsuit alleges that it was foreseeable her mental health and addiction issues made it foreseeable that she would attempt suicide and that she yet she was put in a cell alone put in a cell beyond the reach of surveillance cameras and i think that the wording in the lawsuit is she was allowed to die by suicide the other one is a young woman named gabby chips who was arrested for the first time in her life in august 2020 down on the peninsula and also had some addiction and mental health issues attempted suicide did not die by suicide but was severely brain injured and the lawsuit paints a really really sad picture of her life now it just lists gabby cannot read gabby cannot talk gabby cannot walk gabby cannot live on her own without 24-hour care so she is now being cared for by her family and the lawsuit also says it was foreseeable that Gabby would attempt suicide and that there were no precautions taken that should have been taken in her case. So both of those lawsuits are pretty recent. They have probably a long way to wind their way through the, the system. But the allegations are very similar there, which is that in both of these cases, proper precautions were not taken
1: Michelle, I want to wrap up here with one last question. Was there anything else in your reporting that surprised you or that sticks out that we haven't mentioned yet?
0: Yeah, I I think in reporting on this issue, it's very easy to see the little that the Department of Corrections says as kind of an indictment against them. But I do want to say that the department allowed me to interview some of their top mental health officials, and they were very candid And they were candid in saying, We have a very sick population. We know that we are not perfect, and we cannot prevent every terrible incident, but we want to improve. And they have joined this national effort to reduce suicides in correctional facilities, and they're getting a full review of all of their policies and procedures. And this is not to let them off the hook in any way, but there, I do believe there is a genuine interest on the part of at least some people in the
1: department to address these problems. Well, Michelle Hudson there, thank you so much for being here, and thanks for your reporting. <laughs> Thanks for listening to ADN Politics. You can subscribe to the show in whichever podcast app you're listening to right now. You can keep up with the rest of our coverage on ADN.com. And you can subscribe to ADN there, which is the best way to support our work, including this show. Thanks to our guest today, ADN reporter Michelle Terrio Boots and to reporter Tess Williams for her work on the topic. This episode was produced with help from Zachariah Hughes and Evan Phillips. Our music is by Evan Phillips. David Hewlin is our editor. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. See you next week.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode of ADN Politics was brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible.